Hello, misfits. This is Kate. And this is Kevin. Welcome to Horrorwood. Getting over a cold. A bad one. And I'm sorry to make you come out in this frigid. Negative 30 wind chill. <laughs> <laughs> it's so cold here. I live like literally down the street from you and like just a block. Walk, literally a block, a block. Like one block. And walking up here, I was like, why is this taking so long? <laughs> I know, because you texted me. You're like, I'm headed over. And it's like 20 minutes later. I know. Later. I, I was, well, I had to bundle up. You know yeah. that scene in A Christmas Story where like she's <laughs> yeah. wrapping Ralphie? That was me. Yeah. Um, but you then, made it. I did. Yay. There was an old man who was walking way faster than I was. And I, I was know like, ex- I need to step up my game. I know exactly who you're talking about because I often encounter him at the track and he is so much faster than me. The, <laughs> and he t- is the tall, lanky Very guy. tall, yes. So he lives in my building. Oh, okay. Yeah. He and I, I don't know if it's his, I'm assuming it's his wife first. Yeah, or yeah. Partner. But yeah, they're older. They keep to themselves. I've definitely tried to say hi before, but mm. nada. What you know? Hey, you, to each his people own. don't have to say hi. To no, me. you don't. But yeah, he was just like racing by, and I'm like, yeah, he's so fast, <laughs> and it always makes me feel a little bad about myself when I'm at the track. Because I'm like, damn it, he's just he's amazing. He is. Well, you know what else is amazing? What. We have a new We have a Patreon Misfit Murderino Yay. subscriber. Her name is Katie. Katie, thank you Katie, so thank much. You. Um we really appreciate your support and we're excited for you to go on this little journey with us. Join the adventure train. Oh, okay. Choo choo. Chugga choo. I don't think I told you, but I switched my case that I was doing for today. Oh, so it's, I forgot what you were doing. To okay, begin with. good, because I'm not doing that one anymore. Oh no! At least not for right okay. now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I decided that was better for later on in the year. The case today is similar to the Jesse Blodgett case we did for Patreon. Remind me of Blodgett. So she was a girl on the rise. She was a musician. Wisconsin. I think it was Wisconsin. Yeah, and she had that. It was like it turned out to be one of the. We're not going to say who it was in case someone hasn't listened to that story right. yet. But just to jog my memory. Yes. Yes. He just mouthed it to me. And yes, that is correct. So this is kind of similar uh, in that it's Hollywood adjacent. Mm-hmm. So bear with me, everyone. This isn't going to be like a celebrity everyone knows. However, if you're in the UK, you undoubtedly have heard about this case. Uh, it's about a young woman who was on her way to having what likely would have been a very successful career in the arts, but whose life was tragically cut short. I came across this case maybe a year or so ago when I was just like looking up things to research, and it jumped out at me because of how shocking it was. Mm -hmm. It is probably one of the most animalistic cases I've ever read about. What does that mean? Um, you'll find out when I describe what happens to her. Great. I also want to say, um, 
There is a lot of discussion of rape in this episode, so if that is not something that you're comfortable listening to, you might just want to go ahead and skip this one. It particularly comes up in the second half. So as I mentioned, if you're living in the UK, you've probably heard of this case. One of our two UK listeners has probably heard of this case because it took place in England, London specifically. Today we're talking about the murder of 18-year-old Sally Ann Bowman. Sally was a model, a singer. She attended the Brit School, which is a performing and creative arts school, whose alumni include Adele, Tom Holland, and singer Jesse J, who sings Bang Bang, which Kevin, I'm sure we've discussed this, if I ever, for some reason, play in the MLB, Bang Bang is my walk-up music. Oh, shit. It's I so love good. that song. I do too. I love Jessie J. I remember being there doing my master's when she was kind of like just getting like big over there and mm-hmm. famous in her first album with like price tag and do it like a dude. I didn't even know she was from London until I read that she went to school at the Brit School. Yeah. And my friend Chelsea and I, my friend Chelsea, who's yeah. on the Patreon. Hey, Chelsea. Hey, Chelsea. Uh, we were going to go to Heaven, which is a nightclub in under the arches uh, by the embankment station, because she was going to perform there one night. But we we got a little too drunk, drunk and didn't make it down there. I'm I'm sad about that. Oh, she's such a great singer. Sorry, I'll, I love her. No, I do too. So yeah, this school that Sally attended boasted some pretty amazing alumni. It's a very selective school. Once you apply, you have to be invited to audition. And you might have multiple rounds of auditions before the school determines whether they're going to admit you or not. Drama schools over there are no joke. Yeah. And this is like such an elite one, it feels. Mm -hmm. When I went to Central, I applied uh, prior to when I was still in Kentucky at Berea. Oh, yeah. But I was visiting my friend, boyfriend at the time, who lived over there. And I was there, so I called the school and was like, hey, I applied here, and mm-hmm. I'm here in the country, yeah. and I don't know if that's... And they were like, oh, um, okay. And then- <laughs> they were like, thanks. <laughs> and then I actually got invited for an interview, I think, because I made that phone call. Oh, nice. And that's how I got into grad school. You got to be proactive, people. That interview was three hours. Oh, intense. Well, Sally's admission process to Brit School was also very intense. She beat out 700 other applicants. So that tells you how talented she was, that she was even admitted into this school. But before we get into her career, let's back up and talk about who Sally was as a person. If you don't like getting the background of the person, which some of you don't, and we get hate online for it. Seriously? Yes. It's important to the story. That's how I feel. But some people just want to skip straight to the case. Well, then there's a thing on your podcast app where you can just go bop, 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 and skip forward. Yeah. And I would say if that's you, maybe skip around 15 minutes or so, because I'm about to tell you all about Sally. I want to hear it. Sally Ann Bowman was born on September 11th, 1987 in South London. She was the youngest of four girls. She had three older sisters, Danielle, Nicole, and Michelle. And they were all pretty close in age. When Sally was born, Danielle was six, Nicole was four, and Michelle was two. So they were all just boom, boom, boom. Sally was close with all her sisters, but according to her mom, Linda, Sally and Michelle were the closest, which makes sense. They were just two years apart. According to her family, Sally was a born performer. 
She loved dancing and singing. It sounds like she got that artistic side from her dad, Paul, who was a drummer in a band. Mm. And when she was little, her mom would take her to see him perform, and Sally was mesmerized watching him on stage. Sally also took after Paul looks-wise. Both had a little button nose and bright blue eyes. Linda said that Paul was the king of Sally's castle, and she was his little princess. But when Sally was a kid, Linda and Paul divorced, and the girls lived with their mom. And although Sally kept in contact with her dad over the years, it sounds like they didn't really see each other much. Mm. I don't think Paul was much of a presence in her life physically, at least, while she was growing up. In a documentary I watched about this case on Crime Watch UK, Paul said he always thought that when Sally was an adult, he'd be able to make up for lost time, that he'd be able to spend time with her once she was grown and out on her own. But unfortunately, he wouldn't get the chance. And not being more present in her life when she was growing up is something he deeply regrets. Mm -hmm. Sally's family describes her as bright and bubbly with an infectious giggle. Her giggle was mentioned in several sources I read, so I think it was almost like her trademark. And her mom said she was always glamorous, even if she was just going shopping. She would take two hours making sure her hair and makeup were perfect, even if she was just going to get groceries. She'd put on her favorite perfume, which was Dolce & Gabbana Light Blue. (gasps) I love that. Okay, I do too, and I had to include it because there was a period in my life... Yeah, it was very loud. I might have to take that down (laughs) because there was a period in my life where I only wore Dolce & Gabbana light blue. I remember the day I first tried it. I was at a department store and some employee came at me with a bottle and Mm. she was like, do you want to try this perfume? And I was like, no. And I started to walk away and she said, what if I just spray a little bit on a card for you? And I was like, fine, whatever. She gives me the card. I walk away and then I gave that card a little sniff. And then another little sniff, and I couldn't stop. And I turned right around, and I walked right back to that woman. And I was like, I'm going to need a bottle, thanks. I fell in love with that perfume. It's so good. I had, I don't, I think they had, like, the perfume and a cologne, right? I think so. Because I had the cologne. Yeah. And that was, oh. So good. I used to be, like, I used to love expensive colognes Mm. when I was younger. Now, not so much, because people told me I wore too much of it oh but you can still like it I know but now I just feel bad because every time I put it on I feel like people are like yeah. you do you get your signature scent <laughs> and strut your stuff I have the one I have right now is Salvage it's oh, the is one that, that um, Johnny Depp is in yeah the yeah <laughs> yeah I would I would buy that just because of him it smells so good I bet this perfume the light blue was definitely Sally's signature sure. scent Her sisters called her Star because she loved being the center of attention, and they described her as being fun and energetic and said she was a real drama queen and always stole the limelight. I don't think they meant that like in a negative way. I think it was in love. Danielle, the oldest, said Sally was, quote, a very girly girl who loved her pinks and lilacs and always said she wanted to live in a big white house and drive a pink smart car. Me too. Goals. Sally was also really driven. She wanted to be making her own money. She wanted a family. When her older sister had a kid, they said Sally was the best aunt, treated that baby like it was her own. She just, she wanted it all. She wanted the fairy tale. Sally's two big career goals in life were to be on the cover of Vogue and to perform at the Royal Albert Hall with Michael Ball. 
Michael Ball is a well-known singer and actor in England. He's performed a bunch in the West End. He was Marius in the original London production of Les Mis. He's done Broadway. So big musical big theater man. guy. Sally loved music. She'd play music really loud in her room, and her mom would constantly have to yell, like, Sally, turn it down! And she was always singing throughout the house. Her favorite song was Celine Dion's My Heart Will Go On from Titanic, which makes sense because Sally would have been around 11 or 12 when that movie came out. And that song was huge. It played everywhere. Her other favorite song was Saving All My Love For You by Whitney Houston. Oh, I thought you were going to. There it is. (laughs) That is exactly how it goes. And every night, Sally would turn the water on to run a bath. And while the water was running, she would sing at the top of her lungs, just belting it out. That's amazing. Oh, I thought you were going to say something. Well, and also as someone who lives with somebody who sings. Ah. It's also annoying as fuck. (laughs) So... I think her at mom... some point <laughs> they do it for attention. And I like when Spencer starts singing, he'll like look at me in the eyes and I'm like, I'm I don't want this right now. You know that he's listening. <laughs> OK, <laughs> trust me. I yell at him constantly. OK, well, Sally's mom, Linda, didn't mind it one bit. Well, good. I'm glad she would sit at the bottom of the stairs and record Sally while she was singing. That's sweet. She didn't tell Sally she was doing it because she knew Sally would not want her recording while she's singing in the bathroom because it's such a mom thing to do. Yeah. Well, one night Sally came out of the bathroom to get something and she caught her mom on the stairs recording and she was like, mom, delete that. And so it was kind of like they had a good relationship, but it was just very cute. Like that was one thing about Sally that her mom always remembers is just the music and the singing. Sally dreamed of stardom. She didn't necessarily desire to be super famous, but she wanted to be known, and she wanted to make a lot of money, which, yes, queen. By the time Sally was around 13, all her older sisters had moved out of the house, either for school or they were with partners and living with them, so it was just Sally and her mom at home, and the two of them were really close. They took a trip together to Greece every year. Just a little mother-daughter vacay. Greece is the 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 (laughs) most beautiful place. You can't even speak. I can't even speak. I've never been. Oh, Kate, you've got to go. I want to go. I spent five weeks um, on a study abroad trip in Greece. Nice. And we started in Athens, and then we took ferries around to some of the different islands, like Naxos and Sifnos and Santorini. Um, and then we went sounds amazing. through the mainland, like Olympia. and Oh, my God. I wish I could live there. I, I want to go. I want to go. go. You should. Take me with you. Okay. <laughs> let's go now. Yay. Uh, well, let's finish the episode first. Sure. So Sally and her mom were really close. Like I said, they'd go shopping together and do everything together. One of the things they liked to do when they were at home was sit outside in the back of the house and have their mother-daughter chats while they were looking out at the garden. Sally had built a miniature garden out there with what Linda said were dozens of concrete frogs. And Sally would tell her mom that when she made her first million, she'd make Linda her own tropical garden. Do tropical gardens cost a million dollars? I think she might have overestimated. I think so. The cost of that. That's really expensive. (laughs) What are those those frogs made out of? Concrete, (laughs) but like 
the best. <laughs> but she's talking about like tropical plants and like all the Oh, I bet like all rare works, stuff is expensive. Like a koi pond probably. Sure. I don't know if any of that's going to survive in England. I don't know. <laughs> but it's very sweet that she thought when she started making some real money, she wanted to spend it on her mom. Yes. When Sally was just 15, she was scouted by a modeling agent, and it's no surprise. She was six feet tall, thin, with long blonde hair and those bright blue eyes. She idolized Kate Moss. She hoped to emulate her career, and she was often compared to her, actually. Oh, wow. She began booking small modeling gigs here and there. And in 2004, at age 16, she actually decided to leave the prestigious Brit school because she just wanted to start working. I think she was probably feeling a little restless. And Mm -hmm. once she got a small break in the modeling world, she was like, I want more of this. I need to get out in the real world. She was incredibly independent with a lot of ambition, and her mom supported that. Sally got a steady job at a hair salon so she could have a regular paycheck. And she'd model and also sing karaoke at various pubs and events on the side. And that's actually how she met Louis Sproston. It was just after her 16th birthday, and the two met at a karaoke event. He was two years older than her, and the pair hit it off and began dating. They dated on and off for the next two years, but as Sally's family put it, their relationship was pretty tempestuous. Both both would accuse the other of cheating. There was jealousy on both sides, and they fought a lot. I like that word, Kate, tempestuous. Tempestuous. It doesn't mean something good, but I like (laughs) it. I was like, you did sound like excited when I said it. I was was, (laughs) that sounds awful. You're like, it's very tempestuous. And you were like, And I was like, ooh. No, I like the word. Clarifying. Got it. Nothing about the fact that they fought strikes me as odd given their ages. Teens. Teenagers in their first serious relationship. Or first for her, I'm not sure about him. But I feel like that at that age, you have so much angst and insecurity. Your body is changing and all out of whack. Your hormones are doing cartwheels. I feel like the smallest things can feel huge yeah. when you're that age. I think about this year oh you do you have an anecdote as well well yeah you okay. go first okay i think about the serious relationship i was in when i, I was, was 18 you, oh like... constant fights when things were bad they were bad wow. but when things were good it was bliss it was like oh my god i can't imagine my life without this person yeah and if this person becomes interested in someone else that's the end of my life as i know it i'll never date again no one will love me that's what it felt like oh, at wow. that age did you have something? So I, well, here, we get into some muddy waters here. Oh. Because, like, when you're a homo in rural West Virginia, mm. there's nobody to date. So I didn't have a relationship at that age. Ah. Uh, I did have a girlfriend in eighth grade, though. Okay. Her name was Beth. Okay. And we were making a time machine for this showcase at this in the gym at the school. And we smooched in the time oh. machine. And then I was the one that got, like really intense about everything oh wow and like wrote notes and stuff and I was just like so dramatic about everything amazing and then when we got to high school the next year I hadn't seen her and I was like I like wrote her mean notes and I was like Beth I don't know why you're ignoring me I just don't understand I think this is over (laughs) that's like what you she was my best friend after that though like we became best friends yeah Yeah, it's just that age. It's just like everything is so big. Right. It feels so... Life and death. It's like 
this is it. You know, you can't really, it's hard to see past that Exactly. Point. And from everything I read, it sounds like that was very much the dynamic in Sally and Lewis's relationship. They fought a lot, mostly over silly things that wouldn't even matter a day later. But there were some other issues, too. She didn't feel like Lewis's friends liked her. And Ooh. Lewis admitted that he was jealous of Sally. Mm. Here she is, this gorgeous model. She's carving out a career for herself. She's very independent. And she could get any guy she wanted. And Lewis knew that. Unfortunately, a couple of their fights were so intense the police were called. Okay, that's where lines. Yeah, this is where it gets. That's that's getting bad at that point. On one occasion, Sally accused Lewis of slapping her in the middle (gasps) of an argument, and on another, she accused him of spitting at her. Sally confided in her mom that she loved Lewis, but that she didn't see how they could be together long term. But she said that regardless, the two would always be friends. Although things in her personal life were rocky, professionally, Sally was doing quite well. Amazing. At age 17, she entered a modeling contest. The watch company Swatch was looking for a new face to represent their brand. And despite not having much of a modeling resume at the time, Sally won the contest. Shit. She became the face of Swatch Watches, which caught the eye of the folks over at Pulse Model Management, a modeling agency in London. And in January 2005, Pulse signed her to their agency. That spring, Sally made her runway debut when she walked in the Swatch Alternative Fashion Week. She said she was really nervous because after everyone does their walk, the models basically had to line up next to each other and designers would go down the line and choose who they wanted to model their clothes. Which sounds like a fucking nightmare. I hate that. I hate all of it. She So she's thinking, oh my God, what if no one chooses me? Like, she's really nervous. But it turns out she had nothing to worry about because tons of designers wanted her to model for them, which was a huge boost to her confidence. Peter Kaminsky, who is the head of Pulse Model Management, said, quote, Sally blew everybody away. The photographers were like bees around a honeypot. She was a natural. Everyone at Pulse loved Sally. They believed she would be the next Kate Moss. She was so good that they decided to make her the face of the agency. So she was the one pictured on all their marketing material and stuff. And they started putting her in bigger shows, bigger runway shows. They were preparing her to walk in the London fashion show, which would be huge, like the London Fashion Week. They felt she was ready and were steering her in that direction. Towards the end of that summer in 2005... Sally and Lewis were on the outs again, but September 11th was her 18th birthday, and they had planned to celebrate by taking a trip to Greece. Greece. It's unclear if her mom went this time because it was usually just her and her mom. Mm -hmm. And although she and Lewis were technically broken up at the time, they decided they were still going to take the trip as friends. I literally did the exact same thing with that guy I was with at 18. We had planned a trip for spring break Mm -hmm. to go to the Smoky Mountains. But we technically broke up right before it, but decided to still go as friends. And I can assure you, we were not just friends on that trip. Oh, So I get it. And Lewis later said it was a romantic trip. Okay. It seems like things were fine between Lewis and Sally while they were in Greece. But when they returned to London, they were fighting again. Again? I like it. Again. (laughs) Again. It's It's the past tense that nobody knew about. Exactly. And they were not together. Sally moved out of her mom's house and began renting a room in a house that belonged to a friend of hers. 
So she's starting to spread her wings a little more. But despite having her own place, so to speak, she still enjoyed hanging out at her mom's house, which is exactly where she was on Saturday, September 24th. She spent the day lounging around on the couch in slippers and a pink dressing gown, like a bathrobe or pajamas, and she was chowing down on some pickled onion monster munch, which sounds disgusting. I love monster munch. I've never had monster oh, munch. Is delicious. it only in the UK? I think so. Okay, yeah. I'm sure think, it's great. I mean, think like funyuny. Okay, yeah. I was trying to think because I looked it up, and it was like a baked corn snack yeah, yeah, or yeah. something. Yeah. It's apparently really popular I in Britain. It. So she's just chilling in her PJs and having some snacks, living the dream. And then her sister Nicole called. Nicole asked Sally if she'd like to come out to a bar with her because it was her best friend's birthday and they were going out with some friends to celebrate. And Sally was like, yes, of course I want to go. I'm finally of age where I can drink legally. Let's do this. She asked her sister Danielle if she would give her a ride to Croydon. It sounds like Danielle was also there at Linda's house, and I believe she was the one with the kid. So she wasn't going bar hopping. And I'm not sure where Michelle was. Maybe she was already out. So it was just going to be Sally, Nicole, and their friends. Danielle agreed to give Sally a ride, but told her she'd have to pay for gas. So Sally gave her a two-pound coin. As she headed out the door, Sally stopped and turned to her mom and said, Thanks for having me here, Mom. And her mom was like, Why are you thanking me? I'm your mom. Like, you don't have to thank me. Then as she walked outside, Sally said, Love you. And her mom said, Love you too. And told her that if she needed a taxi service, to call her because she would stay awake. Okay. That's nice. Yeah. Danielle took Sally to the place she was renting so she could get ready for the night out. And you know this was at least a two-hour get ready. She's going out for a night on the town. She wants to look good. She wore a white tube top or like kind of like a white corset top Mm -hmm. that had embroidered butterflies and flowers on it. A light denim skirt with a little white belt and a white cardigan, which she loved. She loved this cardigan. She also carried a Prada handbag. No big deal. Just a little Prada. Along with her passport for ID. And you can bet she was ready to flash that passport so she could buy some drinks. She arrived with her sister and friends at Lloyd's Bar in the Croydon Town Center around 10 p.m. They spent the evening laughing and talking. She bought drinks. They were having a great night. But while she was out, she and Lewis were texting back and forth because they just can't quit each other. He was also out with friends that night at a bar about a half hour away from where Sally was. Sally thought he was trying to hook up with other girls. Lewis thought she was trying to hook up with other guys. And in one text, he actually told her he would spit in her face if he found out she was with another guy that night. But they were broken up, technically, at this point. So if she wanted to flirt with a guy, there wouldn't have been anything wrong with that. Same for him if he wanted to flirt with another girl. The status of their relationship was always in question because they were so off and on. But I do think that they were technically broken up. Around 1 a.m., Sally and Nicole left Lloyd's Bar together and Sally went to a friend's house. While she was there, she decided she wanted to see Lewis. She couldn't stay away. So she and Nicole came up with a plan where they would pretend that Nicole had been arrested for getting into a bar fight, leaving Sally without a ride home. And I don't think this idea was so far-fetched because it sounds like the sisters, when they would get together... Were rowdy. ...could get up to some mischief. Rockets. Yeah, yes. So this is the story Sally told Lewis to get him to come pick her up. 
So at 2 a.m., Sally actually took a taxi from her friend's house back into the town center near the bar. And 20 minutes later, Lewis arrived to pick her up. Keep in mind, Sally's mom, Linda, is at home staying awake in case Sally needs a ride. It was the last thing she said to her before Sally left the house. Lewis wasn't happy about picking Sally up because he wasn't nearby. He was in a completely different neighborhood, but Sally convinced him. So he ended up driving his friends home and then begrudgingly driving about a half hour to get her. Oh, man, that sucks. You can just say, I'm going <laughs> to... You have to be quiet. Sorry, you were it, like you went to start. Well, I was, I was like, like, I'll wait till he sets that down. And but then, then I was like, I'm just gonna freeze, freeze, <laughs> don't move. They began arguing in the car as he drove her back to her flat or the house she was where she was renting the room, right. which was located on Blenheim Crescent. Blenheim Crescent is a street in Notting Hill. It is also the street where the bookshop that was the inspiration for the movie Notting Hill is located. So think quiet residential area. Croydon to Notting Hill is like I think it's about, not super close. I think it's about 30 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. So Lewis, that's why he's so pissed off because yeah. first he left his friends, drove half an hour to get her, then has to drive another half an hour to drop her off, yeah. which was not in his not plan for the evening. They arrived at Sally's place around 2.30 a.m. and sat in the car and argued. Then they'd make up and kiss and then it was back to arguing and then they'd just be silly with each other and... There was a lot of teenage angst and hormones marinating in that car that night. This went on for about an hour and a half, this back and forth in the car. Around 4 a.m., Sally got out of the car, as did Lewis, and they were still arguing. She set her Prada handbag down on the pavement, and they're standing outside talking. And Sally knew it was getting late, and Lewis was probably going to go home, but she didn't want him to leave. So she's like, just stay with me, but he didn't want to. So in an effort to keep him there, Sally grabbed Lewis's shirt and in the process also grabbed his necklace and pulled, which caused his necklace to snap. Oh, I mean, don't grab people like that. They had a, like I said, it was a it was tumu- rocky. Tempestuous. Tempestuous and, and tumultuous and all tumultuous. the things. Like they were both stubborn. Lewis said they were very stubborn and it just, like I said, like it's one of those when it's bad, it's bad. When it's great, it's bliss. That's tough. It was tough. But they also loved each other and had a hard time staying away from each other. So after she pulls his necklace, Lewis was like, well, I'm definitely going now. You just broke my necklace. And he gets back in the car and she actually stood in front of it to try to prevent him from driving off. Don't do that. But I think she realized, all right, this is pointless. He's not going to stay. So she picked up her purse and headed towards her driveway. As she stood at the entrance of the driveway, she looked back at Lewis. He looked at her through the rearview mirror, and he drove away. Multiple neighbors in the area later reported that just a few minutes past 4 a.m., they heard screams coming from outside. No. Richard Wicks, who lived across the street from Sally, said he woke up to what he thought sounded like a female crying out, What are you doing? Followed by a scream. He thought maybe it was just club goers coming home from a night out. So he looked out his bedroom window toward where he thought the screams had come from, but he didn't see anything. He didn't have a very clear view, however, because blocking his line of sight was a skip. A skip in the UK is what we would refer to as a dumpster, like one of those big dumpsters you'd see behind a restaurant or what construction crews will sometimes set up outside of a building that they're working on. And this was a builder skip. And in Chicago, where everybody just 
throws their dog poop. Everywhere. Everybody. The skip blocking Richard's view was located down by the end of Sally's driveway. Anne Hardy, an elderly neighbor of Sally's, woke up in the middle of the night when she heard two screams, which she thought were either from a girl or a fox. Foxes were not an uncommon sound in the area. After hearing the screams, though, Anne fell back asleep. June Comper, who also lived across the street from Sally's home, said she too awoke in the night to some noises. First, she heard what she described as, quote, funny noises like a strangled noise. And like Anne, she thought it was foxes. But then she heard a scream. She went to check on her kids to make sure they were okay and not in any danger. Then at 4.20 a.m., looked out her bedroom window, which is when she saw a man walking across the street towards Sally's house. He wasn't in any hurry. He was just walking casually and was looking from side to side. Once he reached Sally's house, June lost sight of him, but then she heard a dragging sound. So she thought, oh, it's just someone taking something out to the skip. June didn't think much of it. Nothing seemed suspicious to her, so she went back to bed. I'm sorry. Uh, Screams, strangled noises, Mm -hmm. dragging around, and everyone's like, oh, It's nothing. I'm just going to go back to sleep. It's tough because it's also one of those things where, like, I'm not surprised if maybe some of them were a little scared and didn't want to encounter something they weren't prepared for. But also, it's like, call the cops. Right. You don't have, you can do it anonymously. And it's also like, it's, I mean, this is a city. You're in a well-populated area. Yeah. And granted, it's, you know, it's a quiet residential area, but you're still in London. Yeah. And... It's always better to call and have it be nothing than than to to not not call call. and have it be something. Yeah. A couple of hours later, Mm -hmm. at 6.30 a.m., Anne Hardy woke up. Anne was the elderly neighbor who who thought the screams could have been a girl but could have also been foxes. And she had an uneasy feeling. She thought, you know, I should go take a look around outside just to see if I see anything. Someone. So wearing just her dressing gown and her slippers, Anne walked outside, and as she did, she noticed a pair of white legs sticking out from behind the skip. Oh my god. I think at first she tried to sell she tried to tell herself it's just a mannequin. Everybody tries to say that it's just a mannequin. I it mean is and I never get it. it is it's never, never just a mannequin. It's never a mannequin. If you ever see what appears to be a mannequin on the side of the road, remember this moment. Remember that Kate and Kevin from Horrorwood told you it is never just a it's mannequin. It's never just a mannequin. Probably the one time I like find something like that it'll probably end up being a mannequin and we've like called the police but good but that's what we should do it's better to call they're like it's a mannequin and we're like phew exactly and then you go about your day Mm -hmm. pretty quickly Anne knew that when she went to investigate she was not going to find a mannequin based on the screams she'd heard a couple of hours earlier she knew something terrible had happened so this elderly woman in her dressing gown and slippers walks across the road and around the left side of the skip, and there she found the near-naked body of Sally Ann Bowman lying in a pool of blood in her driveway. When Anne saw Sally's body, she immediately fell to her knees crying and said, Oh, poor darling. Did she know her? She didn't know her personally, but she had seen seen her her. plenty of times, always like leaving to go to work or coming home at night. 
I'm about to go into detail about what happened to Sally. I just want to warn you, it is pretty graphic. So if you don't want to hear it, go on and skip ahead maybe a minute or two. Sally never made it into her house that evening. As she started up her driveway just 10 yards from her front door, a male came at her with a carving knife. Oh my God. He grabbed her from behind, wrapping his left arm around her face, and she began to struggle. Sally fought hard, so hard that one of the detectives said she had some of the most severe defense wounds on her hands and arms that he had ever seen. She clawed at him and scratched him, but ultimately he overpowered her. He stabbed her seven times, primarily in the neck and abdomen. Three of those stab wounds were delivered with such force they went all the way through her body. Two went through the front of her abdomen and exited out her back, and the third went all the way through her neck, through her spine and voice box, and almost completely severed her carotid artery. Holy fucking shit. Just the sheer force that that would take. That's insane. That's rage. That's a rage killing. It is intense. It is savage. Okay, well now I see why you said animalistic. That's fucked. Dr. Peter Jarriott, who performed her post-mortem examination, said she would have died within 20 to 30 seconds due to the amount of blood loss. Oh my god. That's the only thing that's actually of any real comfort is that she did not have to suffer for very long. I mean, it. But I mean, I can't even imagine oh, like, what that no would feel like. No. But also, like you're, I'm. I mean, she's in defense mode. She's of adre- pumping adrenaline. So mm-hmm. maybe she didn't feel. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I mean, I. That's the thing. I've never, never experienced anything close to that. I and. Either. I do wonder sometimes how much you actually feel. Right. Like, I, it's it's interesting to me because, like, we can sit here and talk about how horrible it is and everything. But also, like, at what point does your body go into, go into that mode where it's, like, protecting yes. you? Because I know that happens. Well, like, in the Garrett Warren case... He didn't feel the gunshots. He didn't feel the gunshots. Exactly. That's yeah. what I mean. Like, Until after... he, he realized, like okay, I'm either going to die or I'm going to fight this. Right. That's when he started to feel it. But he didn't actually, and that was four gunshots. He didn't actually feel it when it right. happened. Okay. Well, consolation in, in that, but also like awful. Uh, awful. Okay, so after this attack occurred, Sally's killer hid and waited to see if any neighbors came outside to check things out. After about five minutes, when no one showed up, the killer returned to Sally's body and raped her. No! Fucking... As he did so, he bit her multiple times with such force that he left bite marks on her cheek, neck, and breast. It gets worse. Then, in an effort to destroy his DNA evidence, he took lumps of concrete out of the nearby skip, concrete that was part of the building debris that was being disposed of in there, and he shoved it into Sally's mouth and vagina. The pathologist that examined Sally said he'd never seen anything so horrific. When authorities arrived at the scene, they were met with a pretty gruesome sight. Sally's denim skirt was rolled up above her hips, and her underwear was missing, leaving her completely exposed. Her bra was also missing, and a bloody bra strap was found in her hair, which says to me he just ripped her bra off of her. 
She had no identification on her because, as it turns out, the killer took her Prada handbag, which contained her cell phone and passport. In addition to her bra and underwear, he also took the white cardigan she had been wearing that night. None of those items have ever been recovered, nor has the murder weapon. Authorities quickly covered Sally's body so that no other neighbors would see her, but they knew someone in that house would know who she was. So they took a Polaroid of just her face and showed it to one of the residents who identified Sally. Once she was identified, Detective Superintendent Stuart Cundy, who led the investigation, along with two female officers, went to Linda Bowman's house to notify her of what happened. And when she answered the door, her first reaction was, oh, what have the girls done now? She was like, the sisters have been out together. What kind of shenanigans did they get into? Which just tells you how close these sisters were and the kind of relationship they had with each other. Mm -hmm. Linda was not expecting to hear that Sally had been killed. She, along with her daughter Michelle, went to the mortuary to identify Sally's body. And at first, Michelle was like, it's not her. Sally has blonde hair. This girl's hair is dark. But then she saw Sally's button nose and freckles, and that's when she knew. And the reason Sally's hair was dark is because it was wet from where they washed the blood from it. Mm -hmm. They weren't allowed to go into the room where Sally was. They could only look through a window. And all Linda wanted to do was hold her and kiss her and talk to her, but she couldn't. Mm -hmm. And Michelle just kept screaming, wake her up, wake her up. Mm Then they had to leave. They were only given a couple of minutes. Once they ID'd her, it was like, okay, you got to go so we can do our job. It's awful. It did not take long for the police to zero in on their prime suspect, Sally's on-again, off-again boyfriend, Louis Sproston. The police were already familiar with the arguments between Louis and Sally, if you remember from earlier, and phone records from the night she was killed showed the threatening text messages where he said he would spit in her face if he found out she'd been with another guy that night. Don't do that. On Monday, September 26th, the day after Sally's body was discovered, Lewis was headed to McDonald's with some friends when mm. police confronted him. And Lewis said, is this about the row with my girlfriend last night? And the police were like, oh, so you were fighting with your girlfriend. And that was the motive they were looking for. They said, Lewis Braston, you are under arrest for the murder of Sally Ann Bowman. And that is how Lewis found out that Sally had been killed. Because Lewis Braston had absolutely nothing to do with her murder. Got it. The police held Lewis for four days, questioning him repeatedly. But he continued to deny having any involvement his two friends and his brother were also held because they were the ones Lewis had gone out with the night she was killed. But it became clear that Lewis's friends had nothing to do with the crime. They were nowhere near the area when it happened, so they were released. But the police held on to Lewis. He was completely cooperative, gave a DNA sample, answered all their questions, all the while processing that this girl, who he did still love, was dead. He's probably thinking... How is this possible? I dropped her off at her driveway. She was headed towards her door. Like, how could this have happened? And he later said that usually he would walk her to her door, but he didn't that night. They were in a fight. He left a little upset. So he just watched her in the rearview mirror as she started to head up the drive and he drove off. Police were able to get a DNA sample at the crime scene, and it did not match Lewis. Had it not been for the DNA, Lewis probably would have spent the rest of his life in jail. Mm -hmm. 
So the hunt was on to find Sally's killer, and given how vicious this crime was, investigators believed it was only a matter of time before he struck again. When news got out about the murder, a woman came forward, stating that on the night Sally was killed, around 3.30 a.m., so 45 minutes before Sally was attacked, she was standing outside on a street less than a third of a mile from where Sally was found. When a man approached her with a knife, he said, I'm sorry, and began stabbing her. <gasps> Luckily, a taxi approached while this occurred, which spooked the attacker and he ran off. And the woman was able to take the taxi to the hospital oh, to get good. treated. Damn. Lucky. Yes. She got lucky. She got very lucky. The woman had been on the phone when the man began stabbing her, and he stole her phone as he ran away, not realizing the call was still going. She continued screaming after he'd ran off, and the person on the phone could still hear her, which led police to think this attacker did not go far. This clued them in that it could be the same guy and was likely someone familiar with the area because he knew where he could hide and not be noticed. The woman was able to help police create an EFIT, which is basically a police sketch. It stands for Electronic Facial Identification Technique. She described him as white or light-skinned in his 20s or 30s, between 5 feet 9 and 6 feet, medium build, clean-shaven, with short, spiky brown hair. Gross. I used to spike my hair up when I was a teenager. I bet you did. Although police didn't have a name associated with the DNA evidence found on Sally, that DNA did match the DNA found at the scene of a sex crime that took place four years prior, when a woman using a phone booth said a man approached and exposed himself to her, then began masturbating in front of her as he tried to get into the phone booth. He did run off, but that incident from 2001 took place in Purley, not far from where Sally lived, which only solidified the belief in investigators' minds that this man was local and likely lived and worked in the area. So they launched an all-out hunt led by Detective Kundi, who was determined to catch this guy. They went door to door talking to residents, trying to find out if the description of the man matched anyone they knew, and they conducted one of the largest voluntary DNA screening programs in London's history. Wow. They asked local men matching the description of the suspect to come in and get their cheeks swabbed. Obviously, the police knew the killer was not going to voluntarily come in and be like, oh, here you go. The purpose of the screening was, one, to eliminate as many men as possible so they could narrow their search. Mm, I see. And two, to hopefully have a family member of the killer provide DNA that would be a close match. Hundreds of men provided a sample, but that still left thousands that did not come in. And unfortunately, the screening program did not turn up a match. Boo, shit. Months went by with no leads. And for Detective Kundi, finding Sally's killer became an obsession. He knew if the guy wasn't caught, he would undoubtedly kill again. And it was only a matter of time. Finally, nine months after Sally's murder... Her loved ones and the investigation team got the break they'd been waiting for. Oh, thank God. Can I ask you a quick question? Uh, and you, I'm sure you said it. I just don't remember. From the uh, attack on the woman with the phone uh-huh. uh, in the cab and Sally's attack, where on the timeline was that? Her The first woman's attack was at 3.30 a.m. Sally's was at 4.15 a.m. Well, I mean, just like, which happened first? The, the woman on the phone. The woman on the phone. Mm-hmm. And how long before... Uh, before her murder was she attacked 
45 minutes. The woman. Oh, shit. That same night. Yes. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. I didn't. I missed that. So, yeah, that woman on the phone. Yeah. Was less than a third of a mile away. Okay. From where Sally was eventually oh, killed. Oh, fuck. So he went to her first. She luckily got away because that taxi showed up. Yeah, and then he went and killed Sally. He ran off, hid, and when he saw Sally. Fuck. Yeah. Oh, my God. I miss. I apologize. I no missed worries. that. No worries. That's insane. Mm-hmm. He was dead set on killing someone that night. Mm-hmm. So nine months after Sally's murder... They get a break. Mm-hmm. It was June of 2006, and England was playing in the World Cup. And if you've ever been in an English pub when England is playing in the World Cup, you know how crowded and chaotic it can be. I found myself in this very situation back in 2001 when I was in London. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the World Cup, but it was a qualifying game for the upcoming cup. And I was seeing this guy, and he asked if I wanted to go to a pub with him and watch the game. And I was like, sure, sounds great. Had no idea what I was in for. I didn't give a rat's ass about the sport, but at the time, I wanted to do as the locals do. And this is what the locals did. They watched David Beckham. Seemingly every single resident of London and their cousins were all out at the pubs. It was so loud. I couldn't talk to the guy I was with because we couldn't hear each other. Mm-hmm. But he didn't care because he like actually wanted to watch the game. Idiot. But like you could barely move. And if you wanted a drink, you had to fight your way through this thick wall of sweaty, shouting, drunk people. Then wait for eternity at the bar to get your order. My little girl nightmare. And then once you finally got your drink, chances are someone was going to bump into you and cause you to spill it or they were going to spill their drink on you. And that is exactly what happened to Mark Dixie on the afternoon of June 15th, 2006. 35-year-old Dixie was with a group of friends at a pub watching England play Trinidad and Tobago when a man passed by and accidentally spilled a drink on him. Dixie was quick to anger and forced the man outside where he pushed him to the ground. Two police officers were outside and witnessed this, so they immediately arrested Dixie and brought him down to the police station. Even though he was not charged with anything, police collected a DNA sample because a law had just gone into effect in 2004 in England and Wales allowing DNA to be collected without consent from anyone arrested, whether they were charged or not. It was just customary. That I mean, that's a good law, yeah, I have to say. I think I... so, too. <laughs> They found it odd that the 35-year-old Dixie cried like a little baby as they were swapping his cheek. They were like, dude, it's a minor offense. Relax. The guy's not even going to press charges. But Dixie knew that now his name was attached to the DNA sample, which once it was processed in the database, would come up as a match to the murder of Sally Ann Bowman. Holy fuck. Dixie was released shortly after the DNA swab was taken, but 12 days later... His DNA profile appeared in the national database. I was surprised it took that long. I feel 12 like twelve days seems like a a, a long time. Yeah, because I feel isn't it like electronic and she's like boom. Right. But maybe but the, not. maybe the process is. Yeah, I guess it's. And also, I guess if it's a national thing, everybody who's coming in is, you know, getting. I'm, yeah, I'm sure they have to like. There's probably a backlog of yeah. people. Prior to this, his name had never once come up as even a possible suspect during the entire nine-month period since Sally's murder. Once Detective Kundi got the alert that there was a match, investigators quickly devised a plan. Dixie was living in a room at a pub where he worked as a chef. So a team of detectives went to that pub but knew that they couldn't just barge into the kitchen because Dixie would be 
surrounded by plenty of tools at his disposal that he could use as weapons, knives, pots of boiling water, what have you. Mm -hmm. So their plan was to send in two cops to ask the manager to call Dixie into his office just to get him out of the kitchen. But before that happened, Dixie stepped outside to smoke a cigarette, basically just serving himself up on a silver platter. The cops walked right up to him and arrested him. Dixie had no reaction. And one of the detectives, senior investigating officer Chris LaPere, said he had to put his hand on Dixie's chest as he was being handcuffed. And when he did, he said there was no change in Dixie's heartbeat. He said it was chilling. He knew it was coming. The guy had absolutely no reaction, no feeling or emotion whatsoever. When they brought him to the police station to interview him, he answered no comment to every single question. He wasn't going to give them anything. Mm -hmm. Then the interviewing officer showed him a picture of one of Sally's injuries, specifically her hand, where it appeared she had grabbed the knife by the blade trying to fight him off. He just stares at this photo for the longest time, then says, no comment. The officer said right there he knew Dixie was guilty. Mm -hmm. Officers charged him that evening with Sally's murder and then got to work finding out everything they could about this asshole. Mm -hmm. One thing they found when they investigated his home, actually two things, and this is very graphic. I mean, this is bad, so I'm just prepping you. Mm -hmm. They found a video of Dixie that... He had filmed himself, and he was holding a newspaper with Sally's picture on it. The paper was dated six months after the murder, so this was like an article about where the case stood. And Dixie filmed himself masturbating on her photo. The second thing officers found was that newspaper. And when I tell you about this guy's criminal record, you're going to be like, how the fuck has this man been allowed to roam the streets for this long? Mark Dixie was born on September 24, 1970, in South London. His parents divorced when he was 18 months old, and he never saw his biological father again. A few years later, when he was around 8 or 10 years old, his mom remarried to a man named Ronald McDonald, and the two had two sons together. He was a clown that had red hair. Mark adopted the surname of his stepdad and became Mark McDonald. And that would be just one of the five known aliases that he used throughout his life. Oh, fuck. Okay. But unfortunately, Ronald McDonald was not a great guy and regularly beat and abused Mark. Two years into her new marriage, Mark's mom, Leslie, abandoned Mark on the doorstep of a children's home and never contacted him again. Oh, no. I mean... You that just sucks. start to yeah, I you see mean, some things. Right. Yeah. By the time Mark was 14, he was what they refer to in the UK as living in care. That can mean living in foster care, living with other family members, living at school, or living in some other secure place, like a home that mm-hmm. has workers assigned to support you while you're there. And in Mark's case, he was in a children's home. Also, by the age of 14, he was drinking and using drugs. His favorites were pots and cocaine. His criminal record began shortly thereafter. I'm going to give you the rundown of all his crimes. It's a little confusing because there are some he didn't admit to until years later. Mm -hmm. So some articles I was reading didn't have that information yet at the time they went to print. Right. So I've had to piece together his offenses, of which there are many. Okay. 
Lay it on me. At 14, he was involved in several muggings. Then at 15, he punched a teacher and got expelled from school. He also spent six weeks in a juvenile detention center for vandalism. His first really serious crime on record occurred in May of 1986 when he was just 15 years old. And every article I read that mentioned this crime said he was 16, but he would not have turned 16 until September of that year. And it was pissing me off that they kept stating it wrong because I was like, you're a journalist. Why are you getting this wrong? Anyway, the incident occurred in Stockwell, another area of South London where he was living at the time. He attacked a young woman by holding a knife to her throat as he sexually assaulted her, then demanded money before running away. He was caught, but sentenced to just six weeks detention for indecent assault. They just slapped him on the wrist and said, don't do that again. The following year, in 1987, at the age of 16, he noticed a woman sitting alone in a car in an empty parking lot. I believe she was just getting off work. Dixie forced his way into the woman's car where he raped her. After the attack was over, she asked him to let her go. She was like, just let me drive away. And he said, I can't. You'll go to the police. She was wearing one of those blouses that had a silk tie at the neck. Like you can wear it like a little neck kerchief or something. He took the silk tie and used it to bind her wrists and then forced her to lie down in the back seat, at which point he tied her feet up with the seatbelt. Then he set the car on fire. <gasps> she managed to escape. Oh, my God. She wanted to forget the whole thing had ever happened, stating, quote, I had survived. I was in one piece. I just wanted to get on with life. Dixie wasn't charged for that crime until he admitted, admitted to it decades later. Okay. Decades. Decades. Great. The children's home he was living in referred him to a psychiatrist, so he was seeing someone. It was also at this children's home that he met Sandra Beckhouse, and the two began dating. They left the children's home and moved into a flat together, although, and I can't be positive about this, but I think they were still sort of looked after by the workers at the care home because they were still minors. Uh, okay. 1987 was a busy year for Dixie. He was convicted of a burglary and then later that year attacked and robbed a doctor outside of a hospital. In 1988, at age 17, he exposed himself to a woman and told her to kiss his penis. And when she simply walked away because she did not want to kiss his penis, he pushed her down to the ground. Not long after that, he exposed himself to two more women and on April 28, 1988, received a two-year probation for indecent assault and was charged with two counts of indecent exposure. All this while his pregnant girlfriend, Sandra, was at home, wondering what it was her fella did all day to occupy his time. Whipping it out to, ugh, God. One month later, her baby was stillborn. No. Dixie was prescribed the antidepressant Siroxet after this, and mm. a few days later... A Jehovah's Witness stopped by to check on Sandra and see how she was doing. And this is why I think they were still being looked at for the care home. I feel like People they sent back, right? the Jehovah's Witness. Sandra wasn't home when this woman stopped by, but Dixie was. As the woman turned to leave, Dixie followed her into the elevator, then grabbed her by the throat, saying, You've got to help me. I need it. I need it. Ew, 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 ew. She kept trying to fight him off, which is when he punched her in the face, fracturing her jaw. Oh my God. She convinced him that she would take him back to her house and have sex with him. So he got in her car. But rather than driving to her house, she drove to her parents. And when he saw that other people were home, he got scared and ran off. 
I was thinking, why not just drive him to a police station? But maybe he would have like seen that coming. I mean, I think she was. Also, you're just in the mode of like survival. Survival. Jesus. Dixie spent six months in jail for this attack. Just a few months after he got out of jail, this guy just cannot stop. He exposed himself to two women in a car and was ordered to do 80 hours of community service. The following year, he was convicted of assaulting a police officer. And for reasons that we may never understand, his girlfriend Sandra stuck by his side through it all. In 1993, the couple moved to Australia where they eventually had two kids together. And while in Australia, he went by the name Shane Turner, got a job, which he was fired from because he held a knife to his co-worker's throat, but his most serious crime there came in 1998. A 19-year-old college student was at home getting ready for bed when she turned around and saw a man, who turned out to be Dixie, climbing through her window. He looked at her and asked, do you have any money? He then told her to take her top off. She began screaming and kicking him. She was fighting with everything she had in her, but he overpowered her. He turned her around so her back was to him, and he began stabbing her. (gasps) He stabbed her eight times, at which point she blacked out. And then he raped her. He ran off, leaving her for dead, but she survived. Did she survive? She did. Oh, my God. Although he did leave DNA evidence behind, his DNA profile was not in the Australia database, Mm -hmm. and he was using an alias, so he wasn't caught. Ten months later, on New Year's Day of 1999, Dixie was driving when he noticed a woman jogging along the road. He stopped his car a little ways up ahead of her, took off all his clothes, and hid in the bushes. Then as the woman jogged past, he jumped out at her and asked her to perform a sex act. The thought of a naked man just leaping out of the bushes when you're just trying to get your steps in, I would freak the fuck out. I can't even imagine that sight. He was ordered to pay a fine and he was being processed by authorities when they noticed his visa had expired, so they deported him back to the UK. And unfortunately, Australia did not alert the UK of Dixie's offenses while in their country. And at some point, either while in Australia or once he got back to Britain, Dixie and Sandra broke up, and he did not have a relationship with his kids. Because keep in mind, this guy is a father. I mean, I use that term loosely. I would... I'm always curious in those instances, like what that relationship between him and his, yeah, what that was like for her. And the thing is, I mean, because they met in that children's home. So she was obviously coming from a not so great right. childhood Similar either. backgrounds, of course. But it's just so, you know, and maybe with him, maybe he just never showed that side of himself to her. I do wonder because, I mean, at some point she had to realize, okay, he keeps getting... I mean, but he's, like, she can't, she's not oblivious to the fact that he's being charged and sent to prison and all that stuff. So I'm just, you know, nothing against her at all. I'm just curious what that relationship was like. It's interesting. Back in Britain, Dixie complained to his doctor, telling him he was having desperate thoughts and said he was afraid he was going potty. And when I first read that, I was like, you were afraid you were peeing your pants? But it just means, like, going out of his mind. Mm -hmm. His doctor referred him to a psychiatrist in Croydon, and he told the psychiatrist that he had a fear of public places, he was having anxiety attacks, he had angry mood swings, violent outbursts, and was suffering from extreme depression and insomnia. 
He was also snorting about 150 pounds worth of cocaine a week at this point, so that certainly didn't help his mental state. Oh my god. The psychiatrist prescribed him more antidepressants and suggested he seek counseling. When you say pounds... In money-wise. Oh, yes. okay. Sorry, I should clarify. <laughs> yeah. As in like... 140 pounds 150. money. 150. Because mm-hmm. I was like, <laughs> my mind, I forgot where we were. Right, right, right. And I was like... I should have clarified I that. I think <laughs> that would kill someone. That would be a fucking ton. That's like a person's worth of cocaine. Yeah, a week. <laughs> a week. Uh, money, money. Got it, got it, got it, got it. So the psychiatrist is like, hey, you should just seek a counselor. Mm. And Dixie told the doctor, cool, 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 I'll totally do that. But he never went to counseling, nor did he go to any of his follow-up appointments like he was supposed to. Dixie was in a short-term relationship with a woman in 2000 who said he could drink more than 10 pints in one evening and knew him to smoke pot, snort cocaine, and take ecstasy. He's doing a lot of things here. In 2001... He assaulted the woman in the phone booth, the incident I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. And in 2002, he began dating Stacy Nivett. The two moved in together, but shortly after, he talked her into moving to Spain with him. I couldn't find any concrete reason why he wanted to go to Spain, but if I were to speculate, I'd say it's because he wanted to commit more assaults and knew that in London, he'd left his DNA at that phone booth and things could start closing in. Because he'd also just beaten a woman in a stairwell with a chef's steel, which is what chefs use to sharpen their knives. He sexually assaulted the woman and told her, I'm going to kill you. But luckily, a man heard the woman screaming and came to see what was going on, and Dixie fled. But he stole her cell phone in the process and called her ex-boyfriend with it, saying, I've battered her, I've battered her, I've left her by the railway. So I'm thinking that's probably why he wanted to leave. Because that was kind of his M.O. Once he felt he might get caught, he just left the country and changed his name and did it all over again. In Spain, his girlfriend Stacy became pregnant. Also in Spain, Dixie violently raped three separate women within just two hours during one of his drug and alcohol-fueled frenzies. And despite his DNA evidence being at the scene, he got away because his DNA profile was not in the Spanish system. Even worse, another man was charged with the crimes. Rom- oh, shit. Romano Vanderdusen was picked out of a photograph lineup by one of the victims, despite that his DNA was not found at the crime scene. He vehemently denied having anything to do with the crimes, but because one of the victims thought she recognized him from a picture as the man who attacked her, Vanderdusen, who was father to a three-year-old girl, spent more than 12 years behind bars. Oh, no. And they were not easy years. He was looked at as a sex offender and was regularly beaten, spat on, treated as the lowest of the low. He actually requested to be put in solitary confinement for his own protection. That's how bad it was. Years after Sally Ann Bowman's murder, Dixie admitted to one of the rapes in Spain, which DNA evidence confirmed, but said he couldn't remember if he was responsible for the other two because he was so high on drugs. Mm. A few weeks after the three rapes in Spain, Dixie and his pregnant girlfriend Stacy moved back to the UK and into a flat on Blenheim Crescent, 10 doors down from where he would eventually kill Sally. Mm -hmm. However, there's nothing to suggest he knew her, but it just confirms that he did know the area as Mm. investigators initially suspected. 
Stacy gave birth in November of 2003, and the couple stayed together for almost another two years, though they did move out of the Blenheim Crescent flat. But their relationship was deteriorating. Stacy hated how angry and moody Dixie got when he was coming down off the drugs. She also said he liked sex rough and would bite her on the neck during the act, which she wasn't all that comfortable with. But the drugs were really what caused the decline between the couple, and Stacy couldn't take it anymore. Mm-hmm. On September 1st, 2005, she left Dixie and went to live with her mom. Three weeks later, on September 24th, Sally Ann Bowman was looking forward to a night out with her older sister Nicole and some friends. While she was having a fun girls' night out, Mark Dixie was celebrating his 35th birthday. He and two female friends went to a pub where he drank and did cocaine in the bathroom. He called up Stacy, his ex. He was hoping she'd come out and celebrate his birthday with him, but she didn't want to. And after that phone call, his friends noticed a change in his demeanor. They left the pub and went back to the home of Victoria Chandler, one of his friends, where Dixie continued drinking and doing drugs. Victoria and the other girl went to bed, and Mark slept on the couch. Or at least, they thought he did. After his friends were asleep, Mark left the flat and headed out to get his next fix. That's when he came upon the woman in the road, who he beat and stole her phone, before hiding at Blenheim Crescent and spotting 18-year-old Sally Ann Bowman. After the brutal attack that left Sally lying dead behind a dumpster, Dixie returned to his friend Victoria's place, back to the couch where they left him as though nothing had happened. When the girls woke up the next morning, they assumed Dixie had been there the whole night. They had no reason to think otherwise. The carving knife used in the attack was never found, but it's believed it was either one of Dixie's chef's knives or a knife he'd taken from his friend's kitchen that evening. Either way... There is a strong possibility he simply washed it and returned it from wherever he got it, which means it continued to be used for cooking. Dixie pleaded not guilty, so it went to trial. When faced with the fact that his DNA was an exact match to that found inside of Sally, he said he just happened upon Sally's body lying on her driveway and decided to take advantage of her. He thought she had just passed out from drinking too much. That was his defense. He accused Lewis of the murder. He said all he did was rape her. And unfortunately, Lewis was put through the ringer. Dixie's defense really went after him, accusing him of killing Sally. And although he had nothing to do with it, he was seen as guilty in the court of public opinion simply because he'd been the first suspect and they'd been having trouble in their relationship. Mm -hmm. Lewis said that even though he and Sally had split up just days before her murder, they both thought they'd get back together eventually. He said, quote, she was the girl of my dreams, the one true love of my life. He's not perfect. They definitely had their troubles. But you know he's thinking, why didn't I just walk her to her door? Why did we have to have a stupid fight that night? All the things that go through your head. And then to be looked at as the guilty party, he really did have a hard time. It was an emotional trial that lasted about three weeks. Dixie's friends just couldn't believe he was guilty of Sally's murder, calling him, quote, a normal guy and always the life of the party. Nope. When details of what Dixie did to Sally's body were announced in the courtroom, her mom, Linda, ran out of there in tears. 
Photos of Sally's injuries were shown to the jury, and the judge had to remind them to try and keep their emotions in check, but there were jury members just openly weeping at the sight of the evidence. All the while, Dixie showed absolutely no emotion or remorse. Linda read a victim impact statement, and when I first read it, I literally broke down in tears. Mm. I've included pieces of it throughout this episode mm-hmm. already, but I'll also link the newspaper article yeah. I found it in. The jury took just three hours before returning a verdict of guilty. guilty. He was sentenced to life with a minimum of 34 years, and it would be 2015 before he actually admitted that, yes, he, he had killed, killed Setley. He also confessed to other crimes, the rape in Australia and in Spain, and was charged for those as well. Linda has reached out to him multiple times, asking him to tell her where Sally's belongings are that he stole, but he's never responded. Linda said, quote, For three seconds every day, life is normal. Then I realize there is someone missing. It doesn't get easier. I tell people I'm fine, but I'm not. I don't go out in the dark. I've taken down all the hedges so no one can jump out. Mm-hmm. And she also described a recurring nightmare she has where she's at the bottom of Sally Ann's street and she sees Sally standing in the spot where she died. Mm-hmm. And she starts screaming at her to run and Sally's running toward her, but she's not moving. Mm. Sally's family had her cremated and they buried the urn in a grave. Linda said, quote, The day we took her to her grave, I left the house last so it could just be me and her in the car one last time. I put a seatbelt around the urn so I could keep her safe until the end and put on a CD of her singing, My Heart Will Go On. Over the years, Linda and her daughters and her grandchildren visited the grave on Sally's birthday, and Linda would bring a strawberry trifle and pickled onion monster munch. Mm. The family also erected a plaque in Sally's honor where she was killed, but it was vandalized, and the neighbors said they didn't want it up because they were worried it would decrease their property values if they knew a girl had been murdered there. Oh, fuck off. So the family had to take the plaque down. And unfortunately, assholes kept vandalizing Sally's grave as well. It was awful. It got to the point that eventually in 2017, they had Sally's remains exhumed because of all the vandalism. And Linda brought her ashes home. Linda said, I feel happier now her ashes are closer to us. Uh Linda petitioned for a national database in Britain in which everyone's DNA is stored. And Detective Stuart Kundi, who was the lead investigator on Sally's case, supported the idea, stating a national DNA database would have led to Dixie's arrest within 24 hours. Mm -hmm. And I would go even further and say it should be an international database. International. Countries should be sharing information. If there was an international DNA database, then the DNA Dixie left in Australia would have matched that in Britain as well as Spain. And before I get... All the hate comments online, I know it will never happen because people freak out about privacy. And Britain rejected the idea, too. Tony Lake, who was chairman of the National DNA Database Board, said he and his colleagues didn't think there was a need for a universal database. And another spokesman said it would raise significant practical and ethical issues. What I'm saying is, what if, just what if, what if at birth, part of the process is they cut the umbilical cord, they take a sample of DNA to store in a database... That database is worldwide. Yes, I know all babies are not born in hospitals. I know it's not a perfect idea, but I feel like it's one we can start to move in the direction of 
People put their credit card numbers online, their bank info, their address, their social security number. It's all on the internet for any number of reasons. People put their entire lives on social media. Why is a DNA sample any more of an invasion of privacy? And also, you know, this is that, you know, that would be used mainly to connect people to crime. Mm hmm. It's not like it's going to be, I mean, I can see the concern sure. over, you know, what if that info was to get hacked? Like what would, you know, what would happen there? Absolutely. There's a sure. lot of concerns, but if you're not killing people and you're, you know, then you're you talking, probably don't have anything to worry right, about. And you're talking about ethics, like <laughs> which Exa- one is more ethical? Exactly. Tell me. And then think about all of the people out there who are not identified, who have been killed. Yeah. They would know who that person yeah. is. Linda said, quote, I am sick to death of the people who complain about this idea. They have no idea what families like mine have been through. It's just a selfish thing. It's insane when people will literally put everywhere that they've been, every restaurant they've eaten at, where they're traveling right. on vacation, and photos of their like, babies. My DNA. And they're like, my privacy, though. No. We're going to get so much hate, and I know it, and fine, oh, that's I don't fine. Care. Bring it on, bitches. I- <laughs> But I think that this is something that needs to be in the conversation. Deta Ocathane, also known as Baroness Ocathane, <gasps> Baroness. Baroness, was a conservative politician and member of the House of Lords in the UK. She passed away in 2021, but she agreed with Linda on the subject, stating, quote, a lot of women particularly would feel more secure and safe if everybody was on the DNA database, particularly in rape cases. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. And the one last thing I'll say is that Danielle, her oldest sister, still has that two pound coin oh, that she paid for for the God. gas. She said she can't part with it. Yeah, no, of course not. And that is the case. Of Sally Ann Bowman. Jesus Christ, I know. It was rough. That is a tough one. The only, like, consolation I feel is he's not going to see the light of day. No, and that's great. That What a disgusting, vile person who obviously had some very deep-seated issues. Mm -hmm. And what I thought was so striking is that he did talk to someone about that. He He was aware. He was aware, but he didn't continue it. Exactly. So that says to me, like... "Mm." Exactly. Man, I am devastated for that young woman. And her family. And her family. And she had everything. And it was just some rando. And I feel bad for everybody involved. I also wonder, when they took the DNA sample, he didn't flee. Because it seems like throughout the story, when he would get caught, he would Mm -hmm. go somewhere else. I think at that point, he thought, I've gotten away with it every single time. So it won't matter. So I can do it again. And I also think, and so a lot of the investigators do too, that because of how savage this killing was, Mm -hmm. it was probably not his first murder. Probably right. So they're continuing to... Look into other murders. Oh, man. There was a serial killer in Australia, in Claremont, uh, the Claremont killings. And for a long time, they were unsolved. And they did think maybe he had something to do with it. It It wasn't wasn't him. him. But they are continuing to to look into that. Yeah, he is gross. But thanks for sticking with us. I know that that was a tough one. And uh, you can leave your 
thoughts, your comments on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube at that's you, Horrorwood Kevin. Podcast. Sorry, I was I'm still like reeling from this. Yeah. One. At Horrorwood Podcast. You can send us an email at horrorwoodpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can jump on over to Patreon like our newest subscriber, Katie. Katie! And uh, show us a little love there at patreon.com slash horrorwoodpodcast. That felt very announcery and a little spooky, and I liked it. Spooky. Uh, I also like your sweater that you're wearing today. Thank you. You're welcome. What else can we end on that's a positive note? Um, uh, I'm going to somewhere warm. Yes, you are, and that's exciting. For a few days. That's going to be nice. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. I'll be here in the negative 10 degree temperature. Enjoy. I will. <laughs>